Hey everybody, it's Brandon again. I'm coming to you with the second installment of this study that we're doing uh, through the book of Genesis. Hopefully we'll be able to go throughout the whole Pentateuch. I want to really create a uh, conversation, a good quality apostolic commentary uh, in video or vlog form, if you will. Uh, Today we're going to pick up, we've already covered Genesis 1, and now we're going to pick up with Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 1, we went over the creation narrative. We discussed um, Moses' role in presenting the narrative, uh, giving us this revelation from God. And this week, we're going to pick up with chapter 2. Now, I want to begin this study with making it very clear uh, that when we look at the chapter divisions as we have them now, the, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, What's important to remember uh, in well, when we're studying scripture, rather, is that these chapter divisions and subdivisions as we have them currently did not exist in the original composition, meaning simply that these were later added by tra- uh, uh, translators, uh, people bringing systemization to the scripture for reference purposes. It isn't bad, but we have to remember that it is not necessarily inspired. So with that being said, if we are looking and if we are basing our, our interpretive uh, understanding off chapters and verses, sometimes we may uh, may not grasp the full flow of what the original author was trying to uh, give us when they wrote whatever they wrote. So we're going to pick up with that. And that being said, I said all that just to say when Moses composed the book of Genesis, there was no chapter two. So when we're picking up with verse one, let's pick up with verse one. He says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So it's important to remember that in chapter one, we are discussing and we have already covered the truth of what's in chapter uh, one. We're picking up through the creation uh, process He's already created uh, the, the earth and all those various things. So in chapter two, we're picking up with the created uh, planet Earth, uh, everything that's in it already in place. And so therefore, when we're coming to this part of the book, when it says, thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them uh, that were in it. I could see why, you know, they put a chapter two there. But it's making it clear this is a cutoff point. The host of heavens are finished. Everything is done. Then we move to verse two. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. Verse three uh, says, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Now, what we notice here is that we are going into a different day, which is going to be described as the seventh day. Now, the seventh day is going to be important uh, for us for some theological purposes. Now, I know there are some groups who, uh, in particular, the Seventh-day Adventists and other Seventh-day observing groups, uh, even there are a group of um, Seventh-day Oneness Pentecostals. Uh, interestingly enough, there's actually some Hebrew Israelite Pentecostals, Oneness Pentecostals. That's that's a whole video within itself. Uh, but theologically, we must understand the Sabbath day is significant to us, not in the sense of this is how we are to worship on a certain day, but it's significant in its sense that the Sabbath day represents a rest. 
uh, that we're going to see uh, played out in the rest that we're going to have in Christ Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Now, the seventh day, and it's interesting because all throughout history, people have tried to change the work week. I think it was Napoleon the Great uh, who wanted to actually try to make the seventh day uh, like a 10 day work week. It didn't work uh, because whatever God puts in place is what's in place. And we go on with that next clause. It says, God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. Now, when we see the word sanctify, uh, the word sanctify, it is to dedicate something unto God. Well, actually, it has two motions. One uh, is the negative motion, which is uh, separation from. And the positive motion is to dedicate to. So when something is sanctified, it is separated from something in order to be dedicated to something. Uh, you can sanctify something to a person, meaning separated from something or and to dedicate it to. But when we sanctify something for God, we separate it from the rest of those things and we dedicate it to the rest. And so in this case, uh, when he says he sanctified the seventh day, meaning he separated it, praise the name of the Lord, from the rest of the days of the week, and he dedicated it uh, going forward. Now, what's interesting to understand, as we know before, that the Sabbath is a shadow of things that are to come. Now, Colossians 2, uh, verses 16 through 17, Galatians 4, uh, 9 through 11, makes it clear that we're no under no obligation under the current dispensation to worship under the Sabbath regulations as they did before. But for us, the Sabbath is a type of rest that we will uh, enjoy in Christ Jesus. Let's turn to Hebrews, uh, the fourth chapter, verse 9 uh, through 11. We're just going to get a quick reference there uh, so that we can uh, just make sure that we're building this thing line on line, precept on precept. So that's Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse nine, verses 9 through uh, 11. Let's, so let's start there, verse 9 through 11. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he has also ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Now, notice how uh, Hebrews brings that out that this, and we're going to hit on the type of rest that God enjoyed, that it wasn't like a, a rest because, oh, I'm so tired. Woo! Creating all those galaxies. Man, that's a hard work. That's not what the uh, writing is trying to, uh, uh, to uh, convey to us. But it is conveying that because God had did everything, he didn't have anything else to do. Uh, so verse 10, for he uh, that entered into his rest, he has also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us there, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Uh, so the example that he is giving here, he is making a parallel to the same manner that God worked in the Old Testament and his bringing things into flourishing, uh, the same thing that we're doing in our walk with Christ. So there is a ceasing from labor, and we know that we are going to cease from our labors in this current life, uh, in the rest that we're going to have in the resurrection and in the world to come. That's all that the writers are uh, illustrating. And in Genesis here, when we're dealing with the Sabbath day, it is a reference to a spiritual rest. And so let's go a little bit uh, further from this and just making sure we're building on the foundation that is making it clear that this is a ceasing from physical labor. Uh, I think it was Bill Maher. You know, Bill Maher is a, uh, 
is a self-declared atheist and Bill Maher makes the point that you know uh god the bible isn't true because you know ooh, god rested what kind of deity is that and like bill that's not what he's talking about and it's amazing to me how a lot of times people who just love to live in unbelief uh they will quote the bible then they're out of context when they quote it but that's neither here nor there and so let's go to verses four through seven and verses four through seven are going to be, in essence, a history of the heavens and the earth. And so now notice, it's really at verses, uh, verse 3, that you find the complete creation narrative or the seventh day a week in entirety uh, uh, given, right? So it really doesn't get done with what we would call the creation week into verse number three in chapter 2. So it's here at verses 4 through 7 that we're going to go into a completely different narrative where we're going to start now discussing some things that are a little bit different. So let's look at verses 4 through 7. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it, uh, it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now what this is, uh, when it says that these are the generations, this is another way of saying these are the genealogies. Now we are leaving in detail the the narrative of how the things uh that the the, the tangible world the, the the matter the animals all these different things came into being and now the bible is starting to do this thing that i like to call the biblical funnel that now it's starting to uh create a funnel where the focus of the biblical narrative is coming close to man and then it's going to go down to uh abraham and you're going to see this funneling thing taking place all throughout the bible until it goes up but i hit on that a little bit later and so these are the history now the thing that some people try to say is that at this point that this is evidence of what you will call a perhaps a gap theory which i don't believe in uh, or or a, a theory that supposes that this is a second uh, group of human beings that God is creating. That in Genesis 1, there was one group of people. In Genesis 2, there's another group of people. Uh, I think that comes from a faulty reading of the scriptures. Uh, and the reason that I would base that on is because verse 4 makes it very clear that these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. Uh, what, what do you mean? Now the scripture is making it clear that now I'm giving you a history. Now what you would notice with that word generations uh, in the original language, uh, the word there, and when you look up the Hebrew, it means generation or narrative. What narrative are we dealing with? We're dealing with the narrative of the generations in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. Now what I like there is that it says the day that the Lord, that portion there in verse 4, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the first instance that we see the word uh, L-O-R-D for Lord, uh, which is uh, more accurately in the original language, Yahweh or Yahweh. Uh, you know, no one really knows the original pronunciation because of uh, 
uh, issues of translation. But our English word, just for context, Lord, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, which means bread or, or, or can means loaf. And the idea, at least as it's told, is that in ancient times, the English lords or the people who were in well esteem or had a lot of resources, they would uh, have these places where people could come get bread consistently and receive no nourishments. Uh, and so these people would begin to uh, be called dispensers of bread or lords, where the uh, word uh, translates from. So this is just an interesting thing there. And now notice it says it's given the generations. When is it given the generations? What's going to be the starting point of this genealogy? Well, the next clause gives it to us in verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, the history begins before there was any type of vegetation on the earth, before anything had grown. Uh, we were just, in essence, looking at a, a watery globe. So this is how we know that this is not a second, second narrative. It says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this genealogy is going all the way back to the original moment of creation that we see in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is pretty much a grand overview of the creative works of God, but now Genesis 2, as we would call it today, is taking us into an overall I think I had some there, uh, uh, flow of what God has done in his creation of man. And so what we move on uh, to verse 5, and every plant of the field before it was uh, in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. So now notice, this is before anything grew. What verse 5 is saying, well, when did that take place? So we must be dealing with at least after the third day, or better yet, after the fourth day at least, great lights after the fifth day. Let the waters bring forth the sixth day, every living thing. So we're still dealing with that original creation weekend. It, it amazes me sometimes that people miss this uh, when reading it because it makes it very clear. And he even goes on to um, verse 6 to tell us uh, why uh, there was not a man or why he did not do certain things or he did not cause it to rain on the earth simply because there was not a man to till the ground or to grow. And what is interesting here is that some people miss the very point of creation is that we are created with a task in mind. That God did not create man just to sit here and, you know, be lazadaisical, waste time, look silly play have a great time that's that's not the idea of god work was given to man before the fall of man so when we see man in the scripture man is created with a purpose in mind and so let's move on a little bit further as we see here and the bible says that he had not caused it to rain on the earth how did he water the earth well the bible says that it was a fog that came up from the earth that god was watering uh, certain things because of that and the Bible goes on to say that in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So it is here that Genesis 1 uh, tells us that God created, but Genesis 2 tells us how God created. Genesis 2 is going into more detail. Uh, I like to think about sometimes people say, well, there were people here before Adam. Sometimes I say, well, were these people created from the dust of the ground also? Well, I, no way we know that. Wait a minute. Then he's not a man if he wasn't created from the dust of the ground. So, I mean, it's just, it's just 
if you read the context, it'll take you all the way through it. Uh, verse uh, 8. Now, what we notice here, and the Bible says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. God has a, a, a focus on aesthetics that he understands it is important for us to uh, visually grasp things that are aesthetically pleasing uh, and good for food. And he and he also goes on a little bit further, says the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there are two trees that are going to be present within this. Uh, we're going to have the tree of life, which we're going to see a little bit later in the book of Revelation. Well, I'll say a little bit later, really at the end of it. And we're going to see the tree of good and evil. Uh, and it's going to be within this garden that God is going to place the man that he created in his image uh, with his likeness, with his power uh, to fertile that garden, to have dominion over it. Now, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, this is going to be the tree later on that we're going to see that the enemy is going to tempt Eve to take. And this is going to be the very tree. Uh, and again, we don't know what the fruit is. Sometimes you see people um with apples and various things, there's really no way of us knowing what the fruit was, but we can definitely know what the outcome of it was. Uh, that whenever a person would partake of that tree, that guess what? Their eyes were open. They became knowledgeable of the sinful condition that they were in. Now, what's interesting uh, about this chapter is that it goes on to mention in verses 10 through 14, uh, some, some, uh, natural formations that were uh, germane to that uh, original formation of earth before the flood. So let's look at verses 10 through 14. Let's go through it fast. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and it became four heads. The name of the first one was Pison. That is, uh, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havela, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is Beldum and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia, which will be the land of Cush. The Gihon, I guess, would be what we would call uh, another name for the Nile. Uh, we go on to verse 14 and the name of the third river is Hideko. Uh, that is it, which goeth toward the east of Assyria and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, what's important to remember about these rivers is that the topography and the geography of the earth was changed because of the flood. Well, why did we have these rivers named in the world now? What I think probably took place is that the uh, descendants of Noah remembering these rivers probably uh, passed these names on when they got off the, uh, the the ark. Well, why would they do that? I mean, Noah bought, bought how to ferment wine with them. So, I mean, <laughs> why not bring the names of some rivers with them? I don't see what the problem would be for that. Uh, but this is what the narrative is leading us to believe. And verses uh, 15 uh, through 18 goes on a little bit further to help us to understand what's taking place. Uh, the Bible says that in verse 15 of the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Now in verse 15, the Bible says that he put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. God put Adam in the probably the most, I guess we would say probably just like an adult's Disneyland. I mean, just a beautiful place. And his job was to tend and to keep it. Whew, that's all you had to do. And there was going to also be this thing called the tree. Now, some people say, well, was God setting Adam up to fail? I don't believe he was because in order for love to be love, you have to have an option. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that option is going to be the best one, but you cannot truly say that you love a person and that you're in a relationship with them if you don't give them an option to escape. And I know that's probably making the argument a lot more simplistic than what some maybe want to go into, but I believe that as a general overview is sufficient to really give the mindset that we should have approaching that aspect. Uh, now, let me see, in the day, now notice, God gives them that tree but he makes it very clear that the day that you eat of this tree that day you shall surely die uh god is explaining to him that it is very important for you to follow my directions now some people who try to you know uh say it's all about believing god what you're going to notice when it comes to having faith in God throughout the whole book of scripture is that the faith, and I'm not trying to be an advocate of the church of Christ, but they do have a saying that I like the faith that saves is the faith that obeys. Now, Adam, in order to receive the benefit of salvation or to maintain his relationship with God, he had to be obedient to that, which God had said. Now, what do you mean that? Unless I am willing to exercise my faith by obedience, my faith will not do me any good. It is at the point, as we know later on, that when Adam ate of the tree, that that is the moment that he he decided to operate in disbelief. Because in, in necessity, disbelief is simply the seed of disobedience. Now, let's go to verses 18 through 25. God notices something that Adam is alone. Now you can be alone, but that doesn't mean that there's no one, nothing else there with you. There was no one else that was like him. There was no one else that shared his same resemblance, his characteristics. Uh, and Genesis two is going to give us a, a little bit more detail of how that woman came to be in Genesis one. Remember, it just lets us know that he made male and female, but in this instance, it is going to show us how he made them. And the Bible says, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, sometimes I hear people uh, say the reason she's called woman because she's man with a womb. I'm not sure 
if the original language would bear that interpretation out, even though it is true, she is a part of the mankind or mankind that is the carrier of the womb. But, you know, it's cute. But let's let's be careful sometimes when you're dealing with the uh, the text. You know, we can just say it may be an easy way to remember it. But let's not say that's exactly what it is. When the Bible so clearly says the reason that she's called woman is because she was taken out of man. I think sometimes we can get so caught into the cliches that we just go past the clear meaning of what the text is saying. Uh, and now notice, this is what I like in verse 24, because this is going to be a very important theological point. Now, if you have your pens, your papers, which I hope you do, nobody comes to Bible study uh, without pens and papers. I just think that is silly because you never know when you're going to need something that you're going to need to uh, uh write down and save for later and i'm still a little tired of work night shifts but i wanted to get up and uh do something profitable for the kingdom uh let's see here and so let, let's look at this at verse 24 and i'm getting my thing here uh now notice therefore now notice what, what do you mean therefore is building from the precedent of what has just taken place in verses 21 through 23 Therefore, what therefore, the creation of woman and man and this principle, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they both were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, what you will notice about Genesis 24 uh, in chapter 2. Uh, Genesis 2 and 24 is that this actually is quoted by Jesus himself. In one instance, Jesus said that if you don't believe Moses, how will you believe me? Let's turn to Matthew, the 19th chapter at the fifth verse. And let's see if there's some edification, because especially right now where we have people giving alternative views of marriage and various things of that nature. Uh, one of the common arguments that's made is that Jesus never addressed homosexuality. He never addressed any of these various things, which isn't true. Uh, one thing we learned in the banking world, one of my backgrounds in banking and finance, is that they don't teach us how to recognize a bunch of counterfeits. When we were dealing with uh, going through that training for counterfeit bills, they just teach us the characteristics of what a right bill looks like. You know, you're not going to get a hundred dollar bill with a picture of uh, of uh, Bernie Madoff on it. You know, you know you're dealing with a fake. Well, you don't have to learn all of the right, uh, wrong $100 bills. You just have to learn what the right one looks like. And so uh, in this instance, Jesus was dealing with teachings on divorce and dealing with abnormal situations that accompany marriage. And when Jesus was being questioned about uh, the idea of marriage and what's right and wrong, uh, Jesus has this thing about going back to the beginning. Why does he go back to the beginning? Because he wants them to be cognizant of what was God's original intention for man. And it is from that original tension of man that we can understand the work of the Christ and what he is restoring. Because you don't know what something is restored to if you don't know what the original uh, intention or the original function of it was. He says in verse uh, five and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. So letting us see in the plan of God, there is a heterosexual uh, family unit that's in place for the building of the family shall leave his mother and his father. It's not God's will for you to stay with your mama your whole life. You need to get out that house. 
Uh, and get, what is he going to do? He, his will for him to cleave unto his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. Now notice there, he did not say two women, two men. Shall a man leave and cleave unto his wife? We have no precedent in Scripture that gives us the justification uh, to do anything contrary to it. And to say that Jesus has uh, never talked about it is blasphemy. Now, what we see here is the overarching uh, completion of the Genesis account. Sometimes it's it's interesting to think that, you know, well, this is just God creating, but God is really laying down the precedent uh, for his idea of creation and the patterns that he wants in place. Uh, and what's interesting here is when, especially when you get to verse 25, the Bible says, and they both were naked, the man and his wife were not ashamed. And I literally, it definitely means naked. But if we were to uh, just extract some type of allegorical uh, interpretation, it could be understood that there was complete transparency. There was con complete openness. There was complete truthfulness in the relationship, which also gives us a, uh, a, a type of relationship as saints of God and modern apostolics that we should seek to have in our own relationship. So hopefully this commentary has been helpful. We will resume with chapter three and we're going to go a little bit further and uh, continue our study. And again, I know this is not going as in depth as some probably would like, but again, the target of this is to reach someone that doesn't know the gospel because uh, we want everyone to be saved. We want someone to know that there is a way out of your sin that you are to repent of your sin, be baptized in water in Jesus' name, and receive the Holy Ghost. If you are looking for a church to attend that will teach you the Apostles' Doctrine, please go to upci.org, uh, go to the church locator, find an apostolic church near you, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and be baptized in water in Jesus' name. Remember, it's the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. The Lord bless you in Jesus' name.